The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you wherever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and recording tips to get your music out to the masses. So this week, we've got another great show lined up for you guys. we got some news, including some concerning information and legal action from Gibson. We've got a little bit of personal stuff that I'm excited to share with you guys, as well as a new pedal from Beatronics. For our famous gear, we're going to be talking about the history of the Fender Jaguar, Our superstar of this episode is going to be Kurt Cobain, none other than the man, the myth, the legend himself, and we're going to be talking about impulse responses and what they can do for you. Now, for this first bit of news, I do want to talk about something a little bit personal to me. It's not something new that's been released recently. It's been out for a couple years, but it's the first time that I've gotten to play around with something like this, and I'm excited to share it with you guys. What I want to talk about is build your own pedal kits. There are a lot of different brands that make pedal kits that give you the ability to create something yourself, and I sort of see the allure of it just because of something called the Ikea effect, and it's essentially referring to like when you have a hand in creating something yourself, you tend to value it more. You know, term is so coined because of Ikea furniture, but recently I've looked into the different types of pedal kits where they'll usually give you you know, a PCB, like a circuit board, all the components, all the jacks, switches, knobs, other hardware like that, and an enclosure. You probably see things like Build Your Own Clone or different brands like that. But this specific kit that I got was from a company called All Pedal out of uh, Paducah, Kentucky. Now this pedal is called the Slammerai Overdrive. It's sort of a tube screamer style type of overdrive and uh, The thing that's unique about it is not only the graphics, which are super cool, but it's got a three-band EQ. So if you're looking for an overdrive that has a little bit more control over your tone, this is definitely an option for you. You can buy the pedal pre-assembled. So if you like the demos, if you go check it out on YouTube and you really like how it sounds, you can pick this up for 200 bucks, already pre-assembled, no work on your part whatsoever. If you do want to try your own hand at building it, which I do have to say, it was incredibly easy, you can get it anywhere from 90 to about 150 bucks. I'm not sure if they actually produce the kit anymore. I know the one that I got on Reverb was one of the last ones from the company, and I haven't seen them relist one. But you may be able to find them from other used retailers if you want to put it together yourself. Now, one note is that you know the All Pedal didn't just give me this kit or anything like that. I picked it up myself. It's not a sponsored plug whatsoever. It's just something that I did that I thought was pretty unique that I wanted to share with you guys. But you know, if you make your own little pedal kits or anything like that, by all means, send them my way. I'll be more than happy to put them together. It was super fun, and I'd love to talk about them on the show. Now this kit, it's uh, accomplishing the overdrive via a series of op amps and some soft clipping diodes. So a little bit different than a tube screamer, but... One of the things that I was very impressed with is that it feels extremely amp-like. And when I talk about that, I'm referring more to like the sensitivity to your playing, touch sensitivity, things like that, 
in terms of the harmonics especially. It's not an amp in a box pedal, which I'm usually a huge fan of amp in a box pedals, but it's definitely a amp feeling overdrive if that's something that you're into. The soldering work that you gotta do on this kit, it includes the jacks, the power input, the pots, the capacitors, the switch, and the ribbon wire. So integrated circuits that have those tiny little spider legs for the solder pads, and then polarized capacitors that you have to make sure they go one way or the other, those are already pre-soldered to the board for you. So it would be very difficult to mess this, uh, this construction up. The graphics on the pedal are super cool and uh, it's got like a really nice embossed kind of dragon logo on it and then the back plate's got like this uh, silhouette of a samurai and one of the things that I was really impressed with is that the kit actually comes with like a spare flat black back plate so if you're like me and you've got a pedal board you love to throw velcro on the back of your pedals but you're worried about messing up that gorgeous little samurai silhouette on the back of the pedal you can just put on the spare back plate and not worry about messing it up and save the regular one on the box. I thought that was a really, really nice touch. Definitely shows that they're thinking about uh, all of us pedal board minded people. It sounds absolutely amazing for a regular Tube Screamer style tone. So if something that you're looking for is like that Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of tone where you're just driving an amp super hard, then this pedal is definitely going to work for you. So before we get into the demos, just going to talk a little bit about what we're using. It's going to be a Fender Jaguar through a Fender black panel style amp, you know, one of like the late 70s types of styles. What I'm going to do first is play a completely clean tone. That way you can see how it sounds without the pedal engaged, get like a background idea of what the amp is doing to the tone, things like that. And then we'll hop into different demos. Here is our clean tone. <laughs> So like I said, this pedal is extremely great for getting that Texas Special kind of overdrive sound. You know, you wouldn't look at it and think that. It looks like it's something that's really geared to metal players, especially looking at the demos, but it works extremely well for this application. So what I'm going to do here, I'm going to leave all the EQ set at about noon, maybe push the mids just a little bit, and then I'm going to set the gain range about in the middle, maybe 60%. Give it a little bit to push that amp just a little bit harder out front. Let's give a listen to the Slammerai pedal driving a Fender style amp. Now, most of all pedals demos for this particular circuit are geared towards metal players. And I have to say, when you put it in front of the same amp, but you're using a guitar that maybe has active pickups to just drive it a little hotter, and you take the gain, push it all the way to 10, and then increase the treble just a little bit to give it some bite, you get some really, really crazy metal tones out of it. Once again, with this next demo, there is no distortion coming from the amp whatsoever. This is all the pedal and the pickups doing the work. So in this case, we're gonna use a Schecter. It's gonna have an EMG 81 in the bridge. It's gonna be in drop C tuning. Like I said, we're gonna leave the bass and the mids in about 12 o'clock. We're going to take the treble, push it up to about 60%, and open up that gain to that geometer all the way. And you're going to hear how hard this pedal really can sing for like a metal type of tone. It sounds extremely good, and I'm very impressed with it. Let's listen to the metal demo of the Slammerai.
So yeah, if you choose to go with this pedal, it's got some really great sounds. You know, I'm very impressed with it, especially from a metal player's perspective, and I can see this thing making a permanent fixture to my board. I really love the tones that I get out of it. And like I said, and I say this with almost everything, but it's doubly true for this, it looks really cool to boot. Now, moving on from the Slamurai, my little bit of a personal plug for something I'm proud of myself for, <laughs> we're going to talk about Gibson facing some antitrust litigation from Heritage Guitars. Now, if you guys aren't familiar with Heritage, they're a company that, after Gibson's 1984 relocation to Nashville, Tennessee, you know, insert George Orwell joke here, they remained behind the original Kalamazoo, Michigan factory. They bought factory space, they bought all the original manufacturing equipment that Gibson used, and they try to make guitars to the original Gibson specifications. Essentially, they're like classic instruments with a focus on quality and craftsmanship. The thing that's uh, sort of interesting about this legal battle is it's not the first time that Gibson's been involved in some type of legal dispute over copyright. In the late 70s, Gibson actually sued the Elger Company, who at that time they were the American distributor of Ibanez, over the production of Les Paul-style guitars. If you guys have ever heard the term lawsuit-era guitars, this is what it's referring to. The claim actually centered on their use of the Gibson headstock shape, so it wasn't the body shape like we're talking about here. It was that open-book-style headstock shape that Gibson uses. Apparently, Ibanez and a few other overseas manufacturers were making use of this headstock, and Gibson didn't like that. Ultimately, the legal action resulted in the cessation of production of Gibson headstock shapes on Ibanez guitars, so it was successful in terms of stopping the headstock shape. That's why, you know, today especially, you'll see a lot of copies of different types of guitars, that it's very obviously a reproduction of another company's guitar model, guitar specifications, things like that, but they just have their own headstock, and it's due to these types of legal battles. Now, allegedly, Gibson has sent a multitude of cease and desist letters and claim they essentially had a large enough budget to win any legal battle against Heritage over trademarks. What it seems like from Heritage's comments is that Gibson is essentially trying to bully them out of production. They don't want them horning in on what they see as their market. Gibson's threats center around the body shapes of their Les Paul and their uh, ES or Electro-Spanish style guitars, so those like hollow body and semi-hollow bodies that you might be familiar with. Gibson and Heritage claim that they have an agreement, albeit they say it's confidential, that has been in place since 1991. Now that agreement allows Heritage to operate and create extremely similar musical instruments to Gibson, but apparently after Heritage came under new leadership in 2018, Gibson now sees that agreement as null and void. So Heritage has taken Gibson to the Western Court District of Michigan, where Heritage is located at, and they've stated that Gibson has objectively baseless claims to trademark infringement, and they're attempting to act as like a monopoly on the market, which so far it seems like the court agrees with by allowing the suit to go forward. Gibson responded to this legal action by canceling a contract with an overseas retailer called Sweetly, Sweetly is owned by the Caldecott Musical Group. Uh, they're formerly known as Band Labs, so they've made uh, like uh, Cakewalk, that type of uh, free DAW platform, if you're familiar with that. But Caldecott is actually the parent company of Heritage. Heritage is essentially alleging that this move was done to punish Caldecott and try to coerce the company to shut down Heritage. I'm curious to see 
what this brings for the future of the guitar market. And this is specifically because there are a multitude of companies that make that single cut style shape and that ES style body shape. You know, you have ESP, PRS, Ibanez, and Callings. So if Gibson wins this legal battle, are they going to come after these other companies that are creating the same types of body shapes? Are we going to see ESP stop making the Viper? Are we going to see PRS stop making their single cut? Ibanez, Callings. What's going to happen to these other companies if Gibson is emboldened by this legal win and they realize that this is something that they can take to court and win at? I'm curious to see the future of guitars. And you sort of see this process moving forward, especially after Gibson's whole, their, uh, their play authentic ad where they talked about, you know, not playing any types of copies and Gibson craftsmanship is the original and the American and you got to support them. So this is definitely something that seems like it's been a long time coming, especially with the new attitude of the company. I'm curious to see where this will take us in the guitar market. On to a little more positive news, the company Beatronics has released a new pedal called the Zombie. Now, Beatronics, you might have heard of them, they're famous for an effect called the Vespa Fuzz. And this new pedal that they pushed out, it's a $349, it's a crazy analog multi-effect. I mean, this thing is absolutely wild. It includes tremolo, filters, fuzz, tap tempo, wah, an expression output, and CV control. If you're not familiar with CV control, it stands for control voltage, and it's essentially like an active expression pedal where a normal expression pedal is going to be passive, but this expression pedal applies a current to the jack. And this pedal does have a bunch of really wacky sounds. Um, to me, when I was listening to the demos, it was kind of reminiscent of like psychedelic rock music from the 60s and the 70s. And I definitely see it having a lot of creative potential. The demos do sound really interesting. They've got a lot of capability in a single small stomp box. It even makes the use of like arpeggiated pads and sounds like that, which is always super cool to see in a pedal. I'm not sure how useful this would be in a live setting. You know, maybe you could use it to spice up your solos, make them a little more wild and creative, but it's definitely a good possibility for a creative tool. If that sounds like something that's interesting to you with, you know, another set of cool graphics and fonts on another stomp box, definitely check out the demo. See if you can get down to a local guitar shop and play one. It looks like an absolute blast, and I'd be curious to see what people are going to do with it in the future. Now that's all for our news this week, so we're going to get into talking about a very famous piece of gear, and that's going to be the Fender Jaguar. So normally on this show, I've historically talked about very famous pedals because... They're super fun, I love them, and to me it's really cool to look at the history of those, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the history of famous guitars. So the Fender Jaguar was first produced in 1962, and in 1962 it originally cost $379.50. Doesn't seem like a lot right now, but if you adjust that for inflation, in 2022 that would be $3,673. So definitely a premium price instrument you know, proportionally more expensive than the actual Jaguars are today. Strats and Tellys at that time cost $259.50 and $209.50 respectively, so this was definitely at the higher end of their price point for their guitar models. 1962 Jaguars today go for at least $10,000 and more depending on the condition and the rarity of the finish. So if you ever look at old Jaguars, you'll notice a lot of them are in sunburst, Sunburst was the standard finish of the time, 
But if you find something in like Fiesta Red or Lake Placid Blue, that's definitely going to be a lot more rare, fetch a lot higher price point. The Jaguar was designed to be Fender's premium model of their original Big Four, and it saw an alder body, a maple neck, and if it was a unfinished maple neck, it would be a rosewood fretboard like a lot of the other Fender models. The offset body was borrowed somewhat from the Jazzmaster. It's got a little bit of a difference in terms of the horns on it, but it was designed to make playing more comfortable while seated. It had a dual circuit design reminiscent of the Jazzmaster. So on that upper horn, you have that single slider switch to bring you into the rhythm circuit where it's got a different set of volume and tone potentiometers to get you a more mellow sound and it's a neck pickup only. But one of the changes that it made was it had individual on and off sliders for each pickup and it had a third switch on the bottom called a strangle switch. This was essentially a high pass filter that allowed you to get more treble, more jangle, get you a lot brighter sound out of your pickups. One of my favorite mods that we talked about, uh, well I sort of hinted on it last episode, was that you can take the two on and off switches for the pickups in a Jaguar and you can mod them to where when they're both down you get a little bit of a different sound either by putting the pickups out of phase with each other or putting them in series versus parallel. Super fun mod to do. Now if you look at the Jaguar, you'll notice that it does have a weird type of pickup. It's got two single coils on it, but the single coils are surrounded by little metal claws. So what's the purpose of the claws? The claws were actually designed to reduce hum and focus the magnetic fields that the poles produce around the strings. This is a very unique design for Fender. At this time, it was only seen on the Bass 6 uh, prior to this in 1961. So it's definitely something that Fender's pushing as a feature of their premium guitars. I mean, we are all familiar with 60 cycle mains hum, all too familiar where you get, you know, some type of hum or noise that's coming from lights or electromagnetic fields in the area, and it just ruins your tone, ruins your recordings. So these claws sought to reduce that effect. Now the Jaguar did have a little bit of a more interesting design in terms of the neck. It was the first guitar that they offered four different neck widths in total. Some of them were thinner, some of them were thicker than the standard neck on Stratocasters and Telecasters. But what was really interesting about the neck is that the guitar had a 24-inch scale and an extra fret, making 22 total frets at the time. Fender touted this as allowing people to have a lot faster playing, more comfortable playing, and easier access to the upper register. The short scale at the time was designed to compete with Gibson's 24.75-inch scale length, at this time, Fender had a typical 25 and a half inch scale length, so this 24 inch scale length was seeking to appeal to people that wanted a little bit shorter of a scale length, could move around the neck faster, maybe didn't need that extra room between frets. Original Jaguars included the mute plate underneath the bridge. This was essentially a little foam strip that was attached to a piece of rocking metal. The mute wasn't very popular. A lot of people either ignored it or uninstalled it. But it was definitely a feature that Leo Fender touted for this premium flagship of an instrument. It did use the Jazzmaster vibrato unit, which this is, 
you know, it's the most stable tuning design compared to the synchronized tremolo that was used on strats in terms of tremolo systems at the time. It was plagued with an issue of strings that slipped the saddles. So the original saddles, they were the barrel type saddles, similar to a telly, but there was one saddle per string and they were threaded like screws. And a lot of times, you know, if you were using the tremolo or playing extremely hard, you could hit the strings hard enough or slacken them enough that they would jump into another thread on the saddle. This was often rectified by players replacing the bridges or the saddles with Mustang bridges or saddles. One of the things that I did to my Jaguar because I didn't want to have the same issue was I replaced the saddles with Graftech saddles. And like we talked about last episode, if you do that, you need to re-ground your guitar to the tailpiece, that way your strings are grounded. This tremolo system was called a synchronized tremolo, and the reason it was called that was that your bridge actually rocks slightly with your tremolo. So the bridge sits on two little pins inside the bridge posts, and as you rock the tremolo arm, the bridge would move slightly back and forth with it. Sometimes this would result in an issue with the set screws falling into their holes, and one way that you can rectify this if you have your own Jaguar, Jazzmaster, or Mustang, is you can wrap the bridge posts in electrical tape. It'll keep the bridge a little more stable, a little more still, and it'll fix that issue of the bridge sinking. The tremolo system does have a unique button lock. Now, if you have a Squire Jaguar Jazzmaster, this isn't present on those tremolos, but if you do choose to replace your tremolo with a Fender model, you'll see this. The button lock essentially allowed you to retain string tension even if a string breaks. So what you do is you set the little slider button lock, you adjust a screw for tension, and then your tremolo will work in down only mode. You can't pull back on it, you can only push down on the arm. But if a string breaks, that plug on that button lock holds your tremolo in the original resting position. That way you don't lose any spring tension like you would with a Floyd Rose or a synchronized trem. One of the somewhat flaws, but creatively used flaws in modern music is the resonant vibration of the unique design of the tailpiece. So there's a lot of extra string material that's behind the bridge before the strings actually terminate at the tremolo system. And a lot of people have made really chimey noises, especially Sonic Youth, by just strumming the back of that excess string material and getting some really crazy sounds out of it although you do tend to see quite a bit of resonant vibration, especially if you're playing very hard. One of the ways that you can fix that is just winding some foam in between the strings, threading it in there, and that should help to cut down on that resonant vibration if you find that being a problem for you. Now the Jaguar was a huge hit with surf rockers, especially like the Beach Boys at that time, but it fell out of production in 1975. This was probably due to the Jazzmaster being more popular with people at the time, just due to the fact that it was a little bit cheaper and it had been in production for longer. You can definitely see where Fender had tried to push the Jaguar for that same sort of scene, because most of the Jaguar ads were beach-themed. The Jaguar definitely became popular again in the late 80s and 90s with a lot of punk rockers and shoegaze artists. And it was likely due to them being produced in Japan at the time, uh, being a little bit less expensive, being produced overseas, and a more economical option uh, starting in that magic year again, 1984. 
Fender started making American reissues in 1999 with the American Vintage Reissue Series American Jaguars, and then that term now switched to American Vintage in 2012. So that's the history of our Jaguar. Definitely take a look at it, play it, you know, like I've said over and over again, I am a huge fan of Jaguars. I love how they feel, I love how they play, and I definitely love how they look. One person that is probably the most famous Fender Jaguar user is Kurt Cobain. I'm really excited to do an episode on Kurt Cobain, especially in the spirit of this podcast being more budget-oriented, because a lot of grunge artists use extremely budget equipment. A lot of their stuff was very inexpensive at the time, and still remains inexpensive today. So it's definitely going to be a nice episode where we don't see too many alternatives that we need to use for this equipment. Now, Kurt Cobain was born February 20th, 1967, in Aberdeen, Washington, and he died April 5th, 1994. Most of Kurt's family was involved in music, even at a young age. Uh, some of them were even professional musicians. That's how they made their living. Kurt got his first guitar from his uncle at the age of 14, and he was inspired by artists like Led Zeppelin, Queen, and The Cars. He started out writing his own songs by himself in his bedroom, so he's very musical from a young age. In 1985, Kurt started the band Fecal Matter. Very, uh, very interesting name there. After he dropped out of high school, um, Nirvana actually started with uh, Chris Novoselic and Kurt, who would play in the upstairs room above Chris Novoselic's mother's salon. Uh, Chris was a childhood friend. He would play bass for the band, and at the time, they used multiple different fill-ins for their drummers. They didn't have one drummer. Kind of like the band Trivium. <laughs> in 1989, the pair hired Chad Channing when they recorded their first album. He was their first, you know, named drummer that stuck with the band for a while. And that first album was Bleach. Between 89 and 91, it's not clear exactly when, they fired Chad Channing and they hired Dave Grohl, you know, later of Foo Fighters fame. And they recorded their hit album Nevermind in 1991. Now, Nirvana and the Nevermind album started that wave of Seattle grunge music. You know, this is definitely preceding bands like Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. And I really think that you can credit Nirvana with giving those bands their jumping off point and introducing a lot of different people to that Seattle grunge scene. Unfortunately, this story ends as a lot of things do with famous musicians. Kurt Cobain took his own life in 1994, and it followed sustained use of drugs and a very deep bout with depression, but his legacy definitely lives on. I mean, his influence on the music scene is undeniably large. Rolling Stone in 2003 ranked him the 12th greatest guitarist of all time, and he actually has an annual holiday called Kurt Cobain Day. As of 2014, his hometown of Aberdeen has made an annual holiday that his birthday will now be known as Kurt Cobain Day. And I think that's pretty cool. Two of his guitars, as we talked about in a previous episode, are the most expensive guitars ever sold. The Martin D18E from the MTV Unplugged set and the Blue Mustang from the Smells Like Teen Spirit music video. They both sold for $6 million and $4.5 million, respectively. So that's definitely a huge indication of him being an extremely influential guitarist. One of Nirvana's most famous songs is undeniably Smells Like Teen Spirit. Now, the gear used on this song, the guitar started with Kurt Cobain's 
at the time not Signature, but now Signature Jaguar, that was rerouted, and it had two humbuckers in it. It had, in the bridge position, a Seymour Duncan JB. So one of the ways that you can get a guitar very similar to this today is going with the Kurt Cobain Signature model for $14.49 from Fender. If you're looking for something a little more budget-minded, you can go with the Fender Player Jazzmaster or Jaguar. Both of those have humbuckers in the bridge. They go for $8.79 each. They're made in Mexico. Great quality guitars. But for the purposes of this demo, we're actually going to depart from the norm a little bit, and we're going to use an Epiphone SG standard. This guitar goes for $500, and the reason I chose this is it's a super thin neck, it's very comfortable to play, and it's got Epiphone Pro Bucker pickups in it. Now, the JB is essentially a hot-rodded Gibson PAF pickup, and the Pro Buckers are Epiphone's answer to Gibson's Burst Bucker, which is also inspired by the PAF pickup. So it's a little bit more budget option. It's not going to look the same, but it should get you pretty close to the same tones that Kurt Cobain had, even though we're not sticking with his brand of choice. Kurt's amplifier situation was a little bit weird, definitely weird for the time. He actually used a Mesa Boogie Studio preamp, and then he used uh, Crown Base 2 power amps with Marshall cabinets. He wasn't a big fan of Marshall amps themselves, so he had this kind of weird, goofy setup but we can mimic this without dropping a bunch of money on Mesa Boogie and ground based gear. Any clean pedal platform will do for your amp. Uh, most of Kurt's tone actually comes from the DS1 and the EQ section on the Mesa Boogie. So one of the ways we can get around this is we can use an amp in a box pedal. The Mesa Boogie Flux 5 is a great option. It's at 349 bucks. It's got two distorted tones and a five band EQ section, just like their larger brother, the Mesa Boogie Amps. And then you've also got the orange CR120C for 700 bucks. Now, I know that's a little bit out of the budget range that I normally talk about on this show, but the reason I wanna recommend the CR120C is that it is a great pedal platform amp. It's a solid state amp that's voiced after an orange rocker verb, but it's got an extremely clean, clean channel. You know, it's a very great choice if you're going to be using amp in a box pedals a lot like I do to get your tones. It's a 2x12, 120 watt amplifier, so if you're going to be using it for gigging and you don't have the best PA, it's loud enough for you to be heard over your drummer and your bassist. It's just a really great choice all around. Plus the distorted tone is that great orange distorted tone. I'm a huge fan of that. Now if you're not going to use the Mesa Boogie amp or the Mesa Boogie pedal, the Mesa Boogie amps typically have a five-band parametric EQ in the EQ section. In terms of accomplishing this, you'll see when we do our demo that most of these amplifiers that you're going to play are just too dark for Kurt's tones. They just don't sound jangly enough. So one of the ways we can get around this is using an EQ pedal like the MXR 6-band EQ. In this case, we're going to push the 100-band the 1.6K and the 3.2K bands. And then we're gonna bring those up to like the second or the third notch. We're gonna cut the 200 band by one notch and we're gonna leave the 400 and 800 bands alone. So let's give a listen to what our guitar sounds like with our amp. And then after that, we'll jump into our guitar with the EQ section. And you'll definitely be able to hear the difference and how we're getting to that tone, especially the jangly, trebly bit that Kurt's got during the intro to Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm -hmm. 
So if you're familiar with the song at all, you know that that is way too dark for the intro. The intro's really jangly, really scratchy, and we can accomplish that using our EQ pedal. So we're going to push the bands that we talked about before, the very lowest frequency and then the two upper frequencies. We're going to cut a little bit of the mids, and you're going to see how this is going to sound a lot closer to that intro tone on Smells Like Teen Spirit. Here's our amplifier with our EQ pedal. Now the majority of Kurt's distorted tone definitely comes from his use of the Boss DS1 distortion pedal. In terms of distortion pedals, there's really not much cheaper than this, but cheap doesn't mean terrible. The Boss DS1 is an absolute classic. If you've ever pictured a guitar pedal in your head, Chances are, it was probably either a Tube Screamer or this guy. The Boss DS1 goes for 57 bucks brand new, and it's the base of Kurt's distorted tone. So on the Boss DS1, you're going to push the tone to about 9 o'clock, you're going to push the gain to about 2 o'clock, and then the level is going to sit to taste. Another option if you don't want to use the DS1, maybe you want to go a little bit more expensive, you want to get a few different types of overdrives in the same circuit, is the Walrus Audio Eras. It's a really cool looking pedal, it's got a great graphic of a bull on it, goes for about 200 bucks, but you've got a knob that selects between five different types of clipping for your distortion. In this demo, we're going to stick with the less expensive side, and we're going to go with the Boss DS1. Once again, this is our Epiphone SG, our orange CR120 amplifier, our EQ pedal to get us that jangly tone, and then the Boss DS1. Kurt Cobain didn't really use a lot of modulation, but one type of modulation he was extremely famous for using is the Electroharmonic Small Clone. You can get the modern recreation of this for 102 bucks, extremely inexpensive, and it's a great little chorus pedal. But let's say you want a little bit more control over your chorus, or you want to be able to get more of that 80s chorus sound. You can go for three whole dollars cheaper with the MXR Analog Chorus. It's 99 bucks, and the MXR Analog Chorus actually includes a two-band EQ for your chorus sound, as well as a knob for death versus the toggle switch that the small clone has. You've got the rate knob just like the small clone, you've got a level knob in addition to that, as well as a through jack. Another option if you want to go a little more budget friendly is the Behringer Ultra Chorus for $25. In this demo we're going to be using the MXR Analog Chorus, so let's give a listen to how that sounds once again with our amplifier, our EQ pedal. We're going to leave the distortion out because he tends to use the chorus for more clean parts of the verse of this song, and let's give a listen to how it sounds. So that's it. That rounds off our tones for the song Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's a very simple rig, pretty inexpensive if you make the right choices, and you can get 98% of the tones with the options we talked about. Let me know how you guys like it. If you're going for this song, let me know what you guys use to get that tone. 
I'm very excited to see how other people approach this, especially considering the spirit of the genre. So recording tip for this week, we're going to talk all about something called impulse responses, or IRs. I really, really enjoy doing sound demos for everything we talk about on the show. It's a great way for me to grow as a player, it gets me out of my comfort zone, and it definitely demonstrates to you guys what I'm talking about and where we're actually getting when we're using the tones that we're creating here. I did trick you guys just a little bit. So you remember in the beginning of the episode when I talked about we were using a Fender-style amplifier, and then I said we were using the orange CR120. Well, normally, I mic up the cabinets for amplifiers that I'm using, whether it be the Deluxe Reverb, or the GTX, or the Orange, or the Bugera. I love to mic up stuff, do it myself, get into that mode where I want to record and get some real microphone sounds out of it. But, for this episode, I actually used impulse responses for everything. So for our Fender Style amp, you're actually using the Fender Preamp and Fender Power Amp with the Fender Cabinet on a Two Notes Torpedo Cab M. For the demos for the Kurt Cobain tracks, I was using the Orange CR120, and then I was taking the speaker out and connecting it to the Two Notes to a Marshall Cabinet Simulator. The device I was using was called a Two Notes Cab M+. Plus. goes for about 300 bucks, brand new. And if you already have the Cab M, which was the older version, you actually have a free software update that you can get to upgrade it to the functionality of the Cab M+. And that includes things like the preamp and a few different esoteric features that will help make your recordings a little bit more professional. Two Notes is a company that makes it. They're a French company, and they have impulse responses on their store. So any device that you buy from them is going to come with a bundle of a few different impulse responses and cabinets that you can use, but you can get new ones if the bundle doesn't include something you're looking for for about 10 bucks a pop on their store. Talking about the two notes is great, and I could probably do a whole episode on it itself, but that's not why we're here. We're going to talk about impulse responses in general. So what is an impulse response? An impulse response is typically a digital capture and a recreation of one specific speaker in one specific cabinet with one specific microphone in one specific room. Now, how is this accomplished? It's done by running what's called a frequency sweep through the speaker and recording it with the microphone that you'd like to use. I'm gonna give you guys a little bit of a demonstration of what the frequency sweep sounds like, but I will warn you, cover your ears and cover your dog's ears too, because it's probably gonna set them off. This is the sound that you're running through your speakers when you're creating an impulse response. So that frequency response, it's not exciting, it's not all rock and roll, it sounds like something that you'd hear if you were ever abducted by aliens, but the purpose of it is for the microphone and the impulse response creation program to pick up how the speaker and the microphone interact with each other at every specific frequency in the band that you'll be playing in. It's extremely useful if you're using reamping or recording in an area where you can't make a lot of noise or there's usually a lot of background noise. As you saw, it takes a couple seconds to run that tone through. So if you get a couple seconds where you can make a loud noise or a couple seconds where the background noise is gone, you can create an impulse response, save that digital recreation, and use it later in times where noise is a concern. 
most impulse responses are typically that one capture, i.e. once you capture your impulse response and you have that digital recreation, you're picking up what the speaker is doing, what the cabinet is doing, and what the room is doing where that mic is. You can't edit it afterwards. But some companies have taken this a step further, like Amplitube, Neural DSP, Line 6, and Two Notes, and they've created something called dynamic impulse responses. Dynamic IRs actually allow you to manipulate the IR. So you can change parameters, uh, change things such as different speakers in the cabinet, different microphones, you can position the microphone differently, and you can even change the room that the whole rig is in. If you want to use two notes like I do, and you want to use maybe like a captor, a torpedo, whatever works for you, they have a plugin called Torpedo Wall of Sound. And they also have a Torpedo wireless remote app for your phone or your tablet that lets you visually see what you're changing as if you're there in the room with a cabinet. It's super cool. It's super fun to play with. Definitely check it out if you get the chance. The advantage of impulse responses is that they're an extremely inexpensive way to use multiple different famous microphones and cabinets in an easy, low-noise environment. So let's say, you know, you want to use an angle cabinet for one song. You just need an angle cabinet for one tone, or maybe for a whole album. But you don't want to drop four, eight, maybe even 1200 bucks on a cabinet. You can just pick up the impulse response depending on where you go. Two notes, like I said, they're usually about 10 bucks. You just pick up the impulse response, and now you got a $10 cabinet, and it's stored digitally. It's super easy. It's super great. It's all done in the box, and it's a great way to get high-quality sounds without spending a bunch of money. There is a somewhat high barrier to entry for the initial hardware or the software, depending on which route you go, but further cabinets and different models are markedly cheaper than their physical counterparts. They also take up a lot less space if they're just stored on your computer. <laughs> Plenty of programs exist to create your own impulse responses. So if you have a favorite cabinet and microphone combo and a computer, you have the ability to capture your own sound for use in the box. I know for me, sometimes I have an issue where I'm recording where there's maybe the AC running because it gets really hot in my studio room or there's a dog barking outside or a train going by, and that can mess up an entire recording. But if I take an impulse response of, say, my, uh, my box and I want that sound, then I can just go straight from the box into the impulse response and not have to worry about that background noise at all. I can also get the sound of a cranked amp without my, uh, my wife coming in and, uh, you know, getting extremely angry at me waking her up in the middle of the night because I've got the box cranked to 10. That wraps up our recording tip for the week. We talked about impulse responses. I hope you guys use them. I hope you guys get online, check out some free ones, and mess around with it yourself. And if you guys create some, by all means, send them to me. I would love to try out the gear that you guys are using in a digital way. If you guys are interested in getting some of my tones from some of the gear that I have, let me know. I would be more than happy to create impulse responses and host them on the podcast, Facebook, or wherever. That way you guys can get the same tones that I'm using. Happy to help you guys out with that. Our cool music fact for this week, we're going to talk quirks about Leo Fender, the inventor of the Jaguar. So Leo Fender was from Fullerton, California, and he was actually blind in one eye from the age of eight when he developed a tumor in his eye. Uh, he had a glass eye for the majority of his life. 
Leo couldn't play guitar. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the uh, different adverts and little graphics that say uh, not all guitar heroes play the guitar, and it's got a picture of him. And it's true, he could not play the guitar. He wasn't very musically inclined. He did try the piano and the saxophone, but it never stuck. He was more interested in electronics. There's a lot of stories about him. Like when he was younger, he crawled underneath a car, took a look at it for a little bit, and was able to draw all the complex machinery in the undercarriage of the car just from memory. He started with a radio repair shop in Fullerton, California, and at night when he was working in the radio shop, he started to do things like create guitar amplifiers and even create arguably one of the first solid body electric guitars, you know, barring the uh, Rickenbacker frying pan. People would actually uh, rent it out from him because uh, it was a test bed for lap steel pickups, but people loved it. However, he didn't think that it was finished or high quality enough to sell, so people would just rent it for gigs. One of the most interesting things about Leo in the gig scene is that he was known to climb onto the stage during the middle of sets and tinker with amps that he'd built. So while these bands were out there playing, he would crawl up on the stage with a screwdriver and start messing with things and start goofing around with uh, with the circuitry in the amp to see how good he could make it sound. You know, I can't imagine being at this you know, this new and exciting show with all these young guitar players up there and this older gentleman with a with a pocket protector gets up on the stage and starts messing around with the amp in the middle of it trying to control the feedback. Absolutely wild. But it's been a fun week hanging out with you guys. I absolutely enjoy sitting down and talking gear. If you want to talk gear with me, you can follow us on Facebook, you can message me on my Reddit account, or you can email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com. Be more than happy to hang out with you guys, talk to you about gear, talk to you about whatever you'd like. I'm here for you. Till next time, I'll see you guys later.